you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps. From the Moon Broadcast Center at KPCC, this is The Frame. I'm John Horn. On the show today, with the Harvey Weinstein jury still unable to reach a verdict, we look at how the former movie mogul might avoid conviction. Then actress Kerry Washington is the producer of a documentary called The Fight. It's about lawyers at the ACLU taking on the Trump administration. The fight to defend our civil liberties for all Americans is not always easy or simple, but it's important. And we explore the real science that inspired Dracula, Frankenstein, and the creature from the Black Lagoon. All that coming up on The Frame. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Welcome to The Frame. I'm John Horn. Today marked the fourth day of deliberations in Harvey Weinstein's trial in New York City, with the jury telling the judge it is deadlocked on the two most serious charges facing the producer and former studio head. Court was recessed for the weekend, and the jury was instructed to continue deliberating Weinstein's fate next week. Joanne Vipieski has been following the Weinstein trial from inside the courtroom, and she wrote a story about the case for the nation called Why Harvey Weinstein Might Walk. Joanne, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. In your article, you take a different tack from a lot of media reports. You have taken a much more skeptical look at the believability of some key witnesses. So tell me a little bit about how you came up with this idea that there is a different narrative that people weren't really hearing. Well, I wasn't a credentialed reporter for the trial, so I was on the public line. And the public line is full of a lot of people from New York City who just come because they're interested. We wait around before lunch, sometimes for an hour, so we talk. That was my experience of the trial, and it was an interesting experience because everyone on that line that I spoke with, they all were really weighing the evidence and listening very closely to what the direct testimony was and then what the cross-examination was and what the inconsistencies and issues were, and they were trying to figure out, we were all trying to figure out really how we felt about the case. So we were kind of closer to being jurors, really, than the reporters who, by and large, were just reporting the prosecution case. So I want to mention something. I'm going to paraphrase it from your article, and that's essentially how the nature of a relationship can change, that what was once seen as acceptable or maybe regrettable can turn into something, and I'm quoting you now, utterly debased and criminal. That kind of change perspective is something that was raised not by the prosecution, but by the defense. So I want to hear a little bit more about that idea about how the defense kind of targeted the weaknesses in the prosecution's lead witnesses. So 
the prosecution really set out a narrative, uh, what I call a kind of gothic narrative, in which Harvey Weinstein is really the most monstrous individual who's almost ever walked the earth, a beast, a man of extraordinary, overwhelming power, against which these women, all of them, were utterly, utterly helpless. And the defense was really trying to say, let's look at the totality of their relationship and in terms of how people interact. So we're going to show you a lot of emails. And these emails were quite striking because they were read out in court and they're of the most quotidian kind, you know, like, hi, how are you doing? What's your schedule? When are you in town? Love to see you. Having phone trouble, here's my friend's number. By the way, remember two years ago when we were talking about such and such, haha, you know, and that two years ago references the time that they were allegedly raped and abused. So all of that kind of undercut this gothic language of the prosecution case. And it really made, A, the women seem much more complicated and human. And two, it created this sense of blurred lines. Like, what really was going on there? We're talking with Joanne Vipieski about her column, Why Harvey Weinstein Might Walk. One of the other points you raised is about body shaming. You said, and I'm quoting now, never has body shaming and the beauty trap, the normal trap, been so wielded as a weapon of presumed progressive justice. What are you talking about there? Yeah. Okay. So the courtroom became an arena to discuss Harvey Weinstein's genitalia, his fat, his hair. The jury was shown naked pictures of him. It's not clear what that could prove. How it disturbed me particularly was, you know, this monsterization of the accused is something we've seen again and again and again in scandals. It's it's a very common metaphor, you know, the monster. But here, you know, Harvey Weinstein was being made a physical monster, just very animalistic, physical qualities. He was potentially autistic. He was deformed. He was abnormal. Normal and abnormal, these terms were used by the prosecution again and again. Uh, it created a very strange arena of judgment in which the defendant was certainly presumed guilty and also presumed subhuman. You have a book coming out called What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Me Too, Essays on Sex, Authority, and the Mess of Life. How has the Harvey Weinstein trial either challenged or echoed the premise of your book? It really did call to mind the way in which a criminal court is is really not the best place to resolve issues of interpersonal conflict and potential violence, um, alleged violence. I mean, in some cases, especially where there's such blurred lines, um, I think we really need to be thinking about forms of restorative justice, transformative justice, ways in which the community, society can deal with the real ways in which both interpersonal violence and state violence are realities and our realities in the lives of people. And, you know, a court that says you're not telling the truth, you are in places that are fuzzy, I think is, uh, it really reduces life and it really reduces great questions 
of how people interact. Joanne Vibieski wrote the column, Why Harvey Weinstein Might Walk for the Nation. Joanne, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Coming up next on The Frame, in her TV series Scandal, Kerry Washington played a political fixer. As a documentary producer, she's made a movie about trying to fix politics. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Welcome back to The Frame. I'm John Horn. Kerry Washington played a fixer for a fictional president in the TV series Scandal. Now she's produced a documentary called The Fight. It's about lawyers at the ACLU who are taking on the real president. The fight follows the attorneys challenging the Trump administration on issues such as family separation, abortion access, the trans military ban, and voting rights. It's directed by Elise Steinberg, Josh Kriegman, and Eli Dupre. They're the filmmakers behind the 2016 documentary Wiener about disgraced former Congressman Anthony Wiener. I spoke with Dupre, Washington, and Dale Ho. He's an ACLU lawyer and a subject of the film at the Sundance Film Festival, where the fight premiered last month. And Dupre explained how he and his fellow directors picked the cases that they followed. Well, for us, I mean, these were the big cases. These are the big cases. I mean, LGBT rights and and voting rights and uh, family separation, immigrant rights, and abortion rights are the sort of central conflicts of... of The American experience right now. Yeah. Uh, So we wanted to be where the action was. And it, it, we just got lucky that the star lawyers uh, running these cases happen to be very, very interesting, charismatic, charming weirdos. Uh, (laughs) Carrie, when did you get involved in this film and why was it personally important to you? Yeah. You know, the, I think we all really got ignited the, when the decision came down, um, from the federal courts to not allow the Muslim ban. That was such a phenomenal evening. Um, Elise was there in Brooklyn. President Trump's executive order igniting an immediate legal challenge. The ACLU, though, winning a temporary injunction against part of the travel ban. Lawyers scrambling to free those two Iraqis detained at JFK Airport. Then, just before 9 p.m., celebrations erupting when the ruling comes down. I was home in L.A. watching it on television, but we had the same reaction of, like, who's following these folks? Like, these lawyers from the ACLU, they are going to be on the front line of every attack we get from this administration, and who's going to be there to witness it, to capture it for posterity? And so um, Elise, of course, grabbed her, her folks and her cameras and got started, and I called my team and said, who's doing this? How do I be a part of it? Is anybody on the ground with them? And they said, you know what? On the exact same day, the team from Wiener called and asked the same question, would you want to partner with them? And I said, yes. 
Dale, when you let a camera crew in to not only watch you work, but also to see you struggle in your work and get ready for probably the biggest day in your life as a, as a lawyer, yeah. what is the conversation you're having with yourself? Well, it, it was a little strange, I'll have to say. You know, when I go to court, you know, um, there's a kind of invulnerability that we try to project, right? Um, you know, uh, we, we obviously get lots of surprises in the courtroom from time to time, but um, we have to act like, when we're lawyers, we have to act like we expected everything that happened um, was going to happen, um, like we're in control at all times. So letting a camera crew come in and see, you know, the preparatory phase where we're not in control, where, you know, I am messing up while I'm preparing for an oral argument in the Supreme Court was um, a little intimidating at first, but then once I sort of was prepping for the work in earnest, um, you know, th the case was so important, it just kind of became all I could focus on, and I kind of forgot that the crew was there. There's a moment toward the end of the film where the court issues a decision, and it's a slightly complicated decision yeah. in terms of what the question <laughs> is that they're addressing, and in a slightly complicated way, you're not quite sure what they have ruled. Right. And this all unfolds in real time as you're trying to digest, I'm sure, a multi-page opinion and the dissent. Yeah, we lost. <sighs> and let's just say you don't get it 100% right the first time you read through I, I, it. I'd say I got 100% wrong, actually. <laughs> I was trying to be kind. No, it's, it's fine. I, you know, when I read the opinion, the, I, I thought we had lost the case in the Supreme Court that... Uh, the court had ruled against us. Um, I, I just take comfort in the fact that my boss, the legal director of the ACLU, thought the exact same thing when he was reading it. Um, so I know it wasn't just me. Um, it was a complicated opinion. What the I can't understand what's happening. Wait, 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 wait. We won on on establishing that it was protection. The issue was that the Trump administration wanted to put a question about citizenship on the census. That's something we haven't done in over 70 years. And the reason is, is because the government knows that if you add that question, fewer people will participate in the census. If we get a lower population count, that means it's gonna change the way that political representation is distributed in this country. And um, misall it'll re result in the misallocation of over $900 billion in federal funds annually. And it's fewer people in states that tend to be heavily democratic. Uh, it's states and communities that have larger immigrant populations. Um, so diverse communities, communities of color, would be the ones that would suffer if this question were there. Eli, what is it like as a filmmaker to see something like that happen? There's another moment where another lawyer can't get his phone to work, and he, he can't even find a charger, and he goes into a Starbucks. It's like these little details about the minutiae of the job that are so revealing about what it's like to be in this position. Yeah, it's what we live for. I mean, that sort of, that visceral spark, that crackle of being with people and they're sort of revealing their utmost humanity when the stakes are super, super high. It's, it's not just that they're saving the world, it's they're doing it while they're wrangling their children and, and uh, trying to charge their damn phone or assemble Ikea furniture. Meanwhile, they have to fend off the forces that are trying to dismantle democracy. I think that's part of what's so important about the film. I keep referring to these lawyers as our Avengers. You know, they are really these superheroes taking on such powerful figures and they're doing it so 
in such a heroic manner. But when we see the child who won't be quiet when you're on a conference call, or we see you don't know how to plug the charger into your computer, it actually reminds us that in our humanity, we each have the ability to be superheroes in our worlds, right? That like that superheroes are all people who tap into their extraordinary power. That's what these lawyers are. That's what we all have the ability to be. We're talking with Eli Dupre, Dale Ho, and Kerry Washington about their documentary, The Fight. Dale, I come from a family with lots of lawyers, and almost all of them are women. My mom was a lawyer. My wife is a lawyer. My sister-in-law is a lawyer. For people who don't understand, public interest law or working in for the ACLU is more calling than profession because you're not going to get rich. You're not going to become a partner. What is the mindset of a law student and a lawyer who decides that he or she is going to commit to this kind of practice? I think it's a calling. You make a decision to go to law school. It's obviously not an easy thing to do to take on the kind of financial obligations that go with that and to swim against the current when everyone else is going into more lucrative lines of work. Um, but I know, you know, for me, uh, defending civil rights was the reason I went to law school. It's, uh, what I feel like I have to do. Carrie, there's a moment in the film where the ACLU decides to fight for the right of the, I don't think there's any other word to describe it, the racists who are marching in Charlottesville, Virginia, that they have as much of a right to march and protest as anybody else does. And that march ends with the murder of Heather Heyer. And there's a lot of really conflicted feelings inside the ACLU about the outcome of the ACLU's position. I want to ask you just about that moment in the film and what it reveals about how difficult it is sometimes to fight for people's right to speak, even if you find what they're speaking about to be reprehensible. Yeah, for me, that part of the film is so important because I think it's one of those moments when you're reminded that this is not a propaganda film about the ACLU. This is an exploration of people who are at the front lines of this fight. And the fight is complicated. The fight to defend our civil liberties for all Americans is not always easy or simple, but it's important because the moment that we give up our freedoms for any person, everyone is at risk. So I think it's, for me, it's one of the most important parts of the film because it really is um, an affirmation that we're here to tell the truth and we're not here to convince people. We're really here to expose the complexity of the time. Eli, there's so many different ways to leave this film. You can be optimistic about some of the victories. You can be depressed about some of the losses. And certainly, even since you finished the film, some of the cases that were litigated have been relitigated or there have been changes in policy, including very recently the travel ban. What's your take on the tone of the film at its end? I mean, it yeah, it's, it's uh, bittersweet. And I think that what we want audiences to walk away with hopefully, is what the ACLU walks away with, which is, I think they are reinvigorated. I mean, every day they keep getting up and going back into the fight. It doesn't end. We're, it's 2020. We're in an election year. And uh, as a country, we're going to have to decide what way we want to go uh, in November. We really want this movie to be part of the conversation. And I hope that our audiences are as energized uh, for the coming fight as we are. I think what Dale says in the film at the end is so powerful because he really talks about the fact that they are 
they are in this fight and they are taking on this fight for us, but they can't do it alone, that it's going to take people in the streets. It's going to take everyday Americans figuring out, maybe my calling isn't to go to law school, but there's something I have that I can give to this fight. Dale, there's this line that people throw around without, I think, really understanding it, and it's called the rule of law. And I think a lot of people don't really understand what it means and how it should be applied. From where you sit as a lawyer and going forward, what does that concept mean to you, and how do you think it's reflected in this documentary? I mean, ideally, it means that the rights and liberties that we have under the Constitution are available to all of us, right? Um, doesn't matter what your station is in life. But I think what this moment is revealing is that the rule of law ultimately in this country is only as strong as the people who are enforcing the law. And we are in for some, you know, bumpy times ahead in terms of who is going to be adjudicating cases, who is in the Department of Justice. But we've had difficult times in this country in the past for the rule of law. And we've always emerged stronger and my hope is that this will be one of those moments um, in which American democracy is tested, but comes out stronger than it has uh, ever been. Eli, Dale, and Carrie, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks Thank you. For, thanks having for having us. That was the co-director of The Fight, Eli Dupre, Dale Ho, the director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project, and producer, Carrie Washington. The Fight will be released later this year. Up next on The Frame, how classic horror movies were inspired by real science. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Welcome back to The Frame. I'm John Horn. Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, and Creature from the Black Lagoon are classic scary movies with something in common. They were all inspired by real science. That's the focus of a current exhibit at L.A.'s Natural History Museum. It's called The Natural History of Horror, and the frame contributor Colin Friesen tells us more. The Natural History of Horror exhibit isn't the largest display at the Natural History Museum, but on this rainy weekday, it's drawn a crowd. Standing by a man-sized costume for the creature from the Black Lagoon, Chris, a self-described longtime horror fan, says the attraction to spooky stuff is simple. The creatures and the stories... Definitely, like the just the fantasy aspect of it. And he's right, of course. It's a fantasy. There is no actual creature from the Black Lagoon or an actual Dracula or, well, there was a mummy, but not the mummy. You get it. But what this exhibit tries to show people is that behind the fantasy, you can find the unique scientific underpinnings that inspired some classic Hollywood horror. Um, the creature suit is on loan. Um, the original doesn't survive, unfortunately. And then this mask is a pull from the original cast, but that doesn't survive either. That's senior exhibition developer Sarah Crawford, who put this show together. So the story we're talking about in this section is uh, about a coelacanth, if you've ever heard of the coelacanth. I hadn't, but it turns out a coelacanth is a big, ugly fish with gills and a lung that was considered the missing link in our evolutionary move from the water to the land. It was discovered a few years before 
before they made the creature from the Black Lagoon, and its existence kind of makes the possible existence of the creature logical. What was it? Science didn't know, but dedicated scientists were willing to risk their lives to find out. This lungfish, the bridge between fish and the land animal, this one was a failure. It hasn't changed in millions of years. But here, here we have a clue to an answer. Move a little further inside and you'll get an explanation about how without rabies, we might not have been gifted with Dracula. Um, some t- scientists think that um, the vampire legend was inspired by rabies. If you look at the symptoms of both, they're kind of similar. When you are infected with rabies, you get over-sexualized, you get hydrophobic, um, you get averse to strong smells, you snarl. And then also two of the major rabies carriers, bats and wolves, um, are the very creatures that Dracula can shift into. Now, people have always taken things that scare them, that they don't understand, and come up with fantastic and magical explanations. And what this exhibit does so well is reverse that, to show the natural or scientific discovery that got us these horror stories in the first place. Take our old pal Frankenstein, who might never have existed without an Italian doctor-slash-inventor-slash-philosopher who had some kind of weird hobbies. Luigi Galvani, who is a scientist in the late 1700s, um, he basically was trying to figure out what made animals move. Um, And so he took some severed frog legs, put them outside, attached a metal wire to them, and waited till they got struck by lightning. This caused the frog legs to move. Um, so he thought, okay, I've discovered the secret to life. Um, you might recognize that scene from Frankenstein, right? So Mary Shelley was very inspired by science and contemporary science, and she followed the work of Luigi Galvani and mentions him in her introduction to the book. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. To illustrate this point, they'll let you zap real electricity through a fake frog's leg to simulate that great moment in scientific, if not frog, history. And over at the Dracula section, you can even play with some of the old-school Foley devices used to make sound effects for the movie, like coconuts for horse hooves and a sheet of metal for thunder. And finally, there's the movie The Mummy. King Tut's tomb opening was an incredible media sensation. And actually, uh, the Times of London was given exclusive rights to cover the tomb being opened, and so all these other media outlets started inventing stories about what was happening because they had nothing else to cover. And so that's how you get this idea of the curse, which became very popular and then, of course, inspired uh, the movie The Mummy. Crawford says in addition to being an entertaining look back at some little-known cinematic cause and effect, they'd like their exhibit to get people to think more critically about the things they encounter counter every day. You know, science can appear to be boring or old and, you know, kind of fusty to people. And so to connect it to something in popular culture, you know, helps us and helps visitors maybe think about things they encounter in their daily life a little bit differently. Is that the goal, to uh, give someone their serving of vegetables but disguise it as really fun entertainment? (laughs) No, I think, I hope that they start seeing the vegetables as tasty. That's kind of my hope. Fine. Tasty with a side of scary, then. The Natural History of Horror exhibit runs until April 19th. For The Frame, I'm Colin Friesen. And that is all for today. Remember to tune in to The Frame weekend, but because of NPR's coverage of tomorrow's Nevada caucuses, we'll be on Sunday at noon. The show is produced by Darby Maloney, Monica Bushman, Jonathan Shiflett, and Julia Paskin. 
with help this week from Emily Henderson. Eduardo Perez is our engineer. The Frame's theme music is by Taylor McFerrin. And our senior producer is Oscar Garza. I'm John Horn. We're back here Monday at the Moan Broadcast Center. Have a great weekend. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events.